going to the cross today. Most people celebrate Palm Sunday with a triumphal entry. We talked about that before because I wanted to set this week up for you. This week so often goes by quickly, and we don't really take time to think about the significance of this week. And what is the significance of this week? Well, yeah, there's a triumphal entry, but there's all the stuff that happens that culminates on Good Friday. And I think too often we rush past Good Friday to get to Easter Sunday because we're not comfortable with what goes on on Good Friday, right? Uh, and by the way, you're not alone in this. If you're not comfortable with what happens on Good Friday, nobody else was either when it happened. When it went down for the first time, they didn't like it. They didn't know Easter was coming. We do. But I think sometimes it's a disadvantage for us because we skip over the heaviness and the, the meaning of what Good Friday brings. So I want to dwell on that a little bit today, set us up for Holy Week. We're in a series called Turn Your Eyes. This is where we've been and where we're going. Uh, today we are making an exit. Next Sunday, Easter Sunday, is the Sunday that you're going to bring all these people that you've been praying for. And we're going to pull out the plastic chairs because we're going to have so many people. And it's going to be standing room only. And then I'm going to wake up from my pleasant dream and find out. <laughs> I'm counting on you guys. So, uh, I mean, whoever, bring them in. If they're walking down the street, chuck them in your car, bring them here. All right. Because we want to know the difference between the lion and the lamb. Trust me, you're going to want to come see this one. And uh, I heard a rumor there might be horns from somebody. So, yeah, no, that's for real. Uh, Chicago's got nothing on us. That's all I'm going to say, all right? All right, so today, for the uninitiated of you all, I do not like to talk at you. I like to talk with you. So this is audience participation time. And here's what we're doing today. I want you to think in your mind of a person that you know. It's one of two categories. Maybe you've got them both. There's either one person that really stands out to you because they're selfish, or there's one person that stands out to you because they're selfless. So take a minute, put that person in your brain. Who is it that's really selfish, or who is it that's really selfless? And when you've got that person in your mind, trust me, if you do this with me, it's going to be more personal, more meaningful. When you've got that person in mind, either selfish or selfless, give me a thumbs up so I know you've had time to think. Word serve is a church of introverts, so I have to wait another minute before. And it'll be rich. It'll be good. Right? Okay, good, good. All right, so keep that person in your mind. Now, here's the next phase of audience participation. I want you to think of one word that describes that person. And remember, we're streaming, and we've got kids here. So G-rated words that describe this person that's either really selfish or really selfless. Okay? Get a minute. Get a minute. Uh, uh, put a word in your head. And then give me another thumbs up when you've got the word. Oh, you guys are quick today. I think there was caffeine back there. Yeah. All right, good, good. All right, so here's the grand social experiment. We're going to look for trends as we describe these people. I'm going to ask you for one category, and I want you to just shout out the words that you thought of for that person. We're going to start with selfish. What words come to mind for that person that you think of as selfish? Judgmental, Judgmental disappointing, conceited. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's a confession right there. <laughs> Way to go, Matt, leading the charge. So he said me, like as in me, myself, and I, the un unholy trinity, right? What else for selfish? Untrustworthy. Nice. So was it? Hurtful. Okay, good. Man, these are some good words. You guys are on a roll this morning. Do you have a thesaurus sound or something? This is awesome. All right, so that's, that's selfish. Let's move to the category of selfless. Selfless words. 
loving, kind, caring, giving, trustworthy as compared to untrustworthy, apparently. Life. A wife. <laughs> oh, what did you do, Mike? Did you get in trouble? You're trying to get brownie points? <laughs> Never hurts to bank them up. I get it. I get it. Uh, and there was one other I missed. Grateful. Grateful. All right, so do you see the trend? When, when we think selfish, did you hear the tenor of the words? It was conceited. It was me. There was kind of a negative energy attached to the word selfish. Did you see the transition when we went to selfless? All of a sudden, untrustworthy became trustworthy. It became upwards, uh, uh, powerful, encouraging, people that you would want to be around. So I think this, is, this proves my point that we are wired to be selfless. Think about that. We are wired, we are created to be selfless. But because of the state of the world we live in, selfishness creeps in. And you can tell that when something's broken because when you gravitate towards something that brings a lot of neg negative energy and division, uh, that's a sign of brokenness. What if we were able to take that and move to that selfless, positive side? I think that's what we're going to uh, look at today. I don't think. I know. That's what we're going to look at today. And if you ever want to look for a tremendous example of selflessness, look no further than Jesus, and particularly on this day, because the setting is the crucifixion. Uh, you're probably familiar with this story, but uh, the crucifixion is going to show us the difference between living ish and less. And that's either self-ish or self-less. And this is where we come to the cross. As Jesus hangs between two criminals, we're going to watch for an exchange in these words. We're in Luke. And I want you to listen for a repetition of three commands. Now, before I go on, three is significant in the Bible. So anytime you see something repeated three times, it's like a director sitting in the chair going, once more, with emphasis this time, with enthusiasm, right? This is something important when it's repeated three times. For example, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times, that must mean emphasis. How many times did Jesus forgive Peter's denial when he came back? Three times. When we sing, we cry, holy, holy. Oh, you guys are good. This is awesome. Three times, right? So this is scripture. Three times is important. I want you to listen for the three times as we read today's account. I'm going to be reading out of Luke <clears throat> chapter 13, or excuse me, 23. Where am I reading out of? I marked this earlier. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's so hard to find good help, people. <laughs> All right, Luke chapter 23, 32. Here we go. There's my mark. All right, these are, are, this is the description as Jesus hangs between two criminals. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. 
But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting our, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. These are the words of God for the people of God, and for these words we are grateful. Did you catch the repetition of three? What was the three things that came at Jesus as he hung on the cross? Save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself, said the rulers. Save yourself, said the Romans. Save yourself, said the criminal hanging next to him. But here's the great irony. Jesus can't save himself and others. Jesus came to die. That was his mission. In order for him to do that, he had to give himself up on that cross. He could have saved himself. He was very good at it. He was very good at getting away. He was very good at stumping the Pharisees. He chose to stay there. He chose not to save himself so that he could save others. That's significant. That's three times that he had an out, three times that he had a way that he didn't have to go through this. And yet, he chose to stay on mission. That ought to floor us, because this is one thing to say, oh, this is going to be a little uncomfortable. It's one thing to say, this might cost me something. It's another thing to say, it's a little inconvenient, but I guess I'll stick with it. It's another thing to be on a cross, experiencing the most excruciating pain that you can imagine. They even made up the word crucifixion, excruciating crucifixion. It's the same root word. There is no pain like crucifixion, designed to torture, to die slowly. In the midst of that, Jesus is not rocked off his mission. He does not choose to save himself. Even though the rulers that are sneering at him, these are the people that would have granted him acceptance. If the rulers had said, yeah, this is Jesus, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, he would have been instantly accepted by the court, by the Sanhedrin, by the Pharisees, by the power brokers of Jerusalem. His mission would have seemed to be accomplished. But see, it wasn't just about them. Uh, that's too small for Jesus. Jesus came to save the world. If he had said to the Romans, uh, the, the responded to the guards, he might have acknowledged their might and their strength, because this is the way the Romans dealt with the world. Yeah, they had logic and reason, but at the end of the day, it was about Roman strength. And so it was a challenge to his strength. You cannot break us, we will break you. Except they couldn't. He didn't break. Against the entire might of Rome, against the most unimaginable death that they could concoct, he did not break. And then even the criminal beside him, save yourself. Did you catch the different angles that people are coming at? This criminal really isn't interested in Jesus proving that he's the Messiah. This criminal is very crafty because you know what he says right after that? Save yourself, and by the way, save us. Right? This criminal is about himself, and he's trying to use Jesus' pain and agony to activate this thing. Apparently, this guy's got something. If I can get him to do this and then get myself off, then I'll go back to normal. The great irony of all this is, is all those people who sneered, the rulers, all the people who mocked, the Roman soldiers, even the criminal beside him, the reason that Jesus did not save himself was to save them. That's the great irony of all of this. 
And what, what is furthermore interesting to me, if you, if you really just pour through the New Testament, you could see that Jesus absolutely could have escaped this. I mean, there are eight times in the New Testament alone where people wanted to kill Jesus, like picked up stones that were going to stone him to death, threatened to throw him off a cliff, threatened to do all these things. And you can read right here in the scripture, I'm not making this up, and Jesus passed through the crowd. I think Jesus got some serious ninja skills or something. I don't know how he got away, but he always gets away. When the Pharisees tried to trap him, they got together and they said, look, this guy is trouble. We need to end this. We need to figure out a way to kill him. They were very deliberate about that. And so they set up questions for him to answer that were trick questions because they were trying to get the crowd against him. If they could separate him from the crowd, they could isolate him. If they could isolate him, they could grab him. If they could grab him, they could kill him. But Jesus stumped them every time. Do you ever see a, a point in Scripture where the Pharisees or the Sadducees ask a question and Jesus goes, ooh, yeah, that's a good one. I don't really have a comeback for that. No, he's always got an answer, and it always shuts them down. Furthermore, he knew when he was going towards Jerusalem exactly what was going to happen because he tells his disciples in advance, hey, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be put to death. You would think if that were on your uh, travel agenda, you would find someplace else to go. But he's, uh, I love the way the scripture says it. He set his face towards Jerusalem and walked right into the teeth of the dragon. Why? Because that was his mission. And he never faltered, never failed. And when it finally came time for him to defend himself, as Pilate is asking him, which one do you want? He says, nothing. He does nothing. His ninja skills have been retired. He's just there on display as the full lamb of God, the sacrifice to take away our sin. This blows me away. Maybe I'm the only one, but he knew exactly what he was getting into, and he went anyway because of us. See, that's the other part I forgot to mention. We are the other as well. It's not just the rulers. It's not just the Romans. It's not even the criminal hanging beside him. It's us that he thought of when he refused to save himself. When it comes to us applying this, what does this mean for us today then? Well, is the mission over or is it not? Depends. Depends on your perspective. Is the mission of saving the world over? Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Those who believe have eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. Mission accomplished. But... Not everybody knows this. What is our great commission? What did Jesus tell us to do? Go make disciples. That is the mission of Word Serve Church. Go and make disciples. Maybe that's by the way that we speak. Maybe that's by the way that we live. Maybe that's by a lunch that gets packed or a diaper, size three, that gets delivered to Seely Pregnancy Center. There's a myriad of ways to do this. But the important point is we have a mission. So why isn't the mission being done effectively? I have a theory. I have a theory that it's the same three angles that the enemy is using to try and separate us from our mission. See, because if I'm full on for Jesus, I might be labeled a Jesus freak. If I live differently than this world, I'm going to be looked at differently. Personally, I'm okay with that. Always been a little different. Ask my parents. But here's the thing. The rulers of the old times, that represented the legitimacy and acceptance. In the modern era, here's the rulers that we struggle with, the popular crowd. If you're in high school or if you're in school, there's a popular crowd, isn't there? 
and people do things that they normally wouldn't do to try and fit in to that popular crowd. And when you graduate high school, that all goes away. Not. People are still doing that, do we not? We still have the popular crowd that we're trying to fit in with. We sometimes do things, buy things, wear things, drive things that maybe we wouldn't because we want to fit into the popular crowd. We don't want to be seen as unusual. We don't want to be seen as life is different. By the way, if you don't want to be seen as life is different, you probably should pick a different church than Word Serve. That's our motto. That's our tagline. Life is different. So be different. Be proud. Own that. The other one that we struggle with is that whereas the Romans represented pride or ego, in the modern times, I think that's a challenge to our competency. If we say, I'm a Jesus follower, people think you're stupid, like you checked your brain at the door. Like, you really believe that stuff? Yeah, I do. How could you do that? I mean, that's, that's a fairy tale. Mm, no, there's a lot of historical evidence. If you dig into it, the further you dig, I think the further you get entrenched. If anybody hasn't seen The Case for Christ, it's a movie, it's also a book by Lee Strobel, you should check that out. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter and an atheist. He set out to prove that God did not exist and Christ was just a fallacy. And guess what? He's now a professor of apologetics. You can't make this stuff up. The further that he dug, the more he got into the fact that, no, this is real. And he interviews experts. So, yeah, uh, they'll challenge your competency. Like, you can't really believe that. Come on, man. That's, well, that's for kids. Now, I, I think the problem in North America is that we have made it just for kids. We've, we've made the stories cute and colorful and fun, and we've got, I started to say flannel boards. Boy, swipe the old guy card. We've got PowerPoints, I don't know, holographic displays. What do we have these days? I don't know. But we've got all these things for kids, and we say, well, what a wonderful kid story. And that's true, but it's much deeper than that, as you see in today's account. You think they're talking about this in your kindergarten class right now? Hanging on a cross, the most crucifying, excruciating way to die. Yeah, no, we, we fail to sometimes absorb the impact of this story. So don't let people challenge your competency. Instead, let that be the invitation. Oh, well, so you don't believe that I see that. So what, what keeps you from believing? Just curious. Have you read the book Case for Christ? Have you seen the movie? You should check it out. Have you seen the Jesus Revolution? See, you don't have to be a theological expert. I mean, it's not going to hurt. If you want to study, I'm never against studying. I'm not anti-intellectual. But I think sometimes we make too much of that. That's an, that becomes an excuse. I don't know enough to be you know, making disciples. Yeah, you do. If you know Jesus, you know enough. Just let Jesus live through you. Let people see that. Let people see that you're different, that you're okay with different, and that you live different. And when you make a mistake, get up, dust yourself off, Go live different again. I think this is what we struggle with. But here's the biggest one, I think. The criminal represents self-preservation. And man, isn't that instinct strong today? Isn't it much, much better? Don't you see the, the, the conversation in your mind going, yeah, Bill, you could go and talk to people, but that's going to be uncomfortable. Why don't you just sit back on that couch and stream Netflix for six hours? Why don't you uh, just not say anything when the opening is there because you you know, that would be uncomfortable. Why don't you just relax? The other people are doing this mission out there. You don't have to do this. But here's the thing. You may have somebody that nobody else can reach in this room. I know that you have people that I can't reach in this room. Because when you get a title like reverend in front of your name, people look at you differently. They talk about you differently. 
and they don't say things that they might otherwise say. They don't really want to be around you. I don't take it personal sometimes. But that's just a fact. You know people. You have connections that I can never make. So you are a part of this mission, as am I. So don't let that criminal within that says, just take care of yourself, just relax, just be comfortable. How does this look? How do we do this practically? Well, I got this really cool picture of this bridge that I found. I like the hands because it kind of represents Christ building a bridge as a result of his sacrifice. Actually, that's not what that picture represents. That's just how I see that picture. But here's the thing. There's this bridge that Christ's sacrifice makes possible. And the bridge is between those who believe and those who don't, those who have been estranged, and those that he calls back to his presence. That bridge has been built by Christ. Now, Christ asks us to walk across that bridge to the other. Pretend like this is the side of the believers and this is the side of the people that haven't heard or maybe have been disenfranchised. Christ invites us to go there. Christ invites us to love the other as much as he loved the other. Does he ask us to die on a cross for them? Sort of. Pick up your cross daily. Sound familiar? Yeah, sort of. So it's a big stretch, isn't it? If you think about all those people that you named earlier that were selfish, the ones that we don't like, that are untrustworthy, that are conceited, that are me, that are all those things, we don't like those people. But we don't have to like them. We have to love them. That's what Jesus commanded. So how do you love that other person? It's a, it's a stretch. It's a bridge too far for many. Here's the analogy that I like to, to use, the steps that I like to take. <laughs> steps across a bridge. I just thought of that. <laughs> right? It just hit me what that means. So here's what we do. The first thing that we do is we recognize that Christ died for me. That, yeah, he could have saved himself, but he didn't because of me. That's how much he loves me. And then right behind that, we recognize that he feels the same way about that selfish person that I just pictured. He died for them, too. It's not just me. So if he can love them that much, can I love them that much? Still a bridge too far for me. So the next thing that I like to do is visualize Jesus at the halfway point of this bridge calling you. Come, follow me. Walk to Jesus first. Start that journey with Jesus first so that when you start walking, you walk to Jesus, but then Jesus walks with you, and you walk with Jesus to that person that you can't stand but he died for, to that person that just irritates you to your core, that you don't believe deserves a second chance, but he does. Walk with him. Take him with you wherever you go. Show the world that kind of self less love. And I guarantee you that they will be moved. You may not see it. You may not even see it in your lifetime, but a seed is going to be planted. And where that seed is planted and the Holy Spirit abounds, it will be watered. And you may not be there for the harvest, but you've made a difference. You've done the task of casting the seed. Let God do the rest. Maybe in doing that, we take a world from self-ish to self-less. And maybe we begin with ourselves today as we go from ish to less. When Jesus made this great exit, he created a great entrance. And that entrance is to our hearts, where he plants that seed, where he calls us, not just with words, 
but with a life that he lived and gave for us. How much more so should we be willing to live for him?